You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Crystal. And I'm Nancy. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking in person and socially distanced with Shane Doyle. Dr. Shane Doyle. Dr. Shane Doyle. Yay. Yay. (laughs) We're excited to talk to Shane about a myriad of topics today. But before we get started, I wanted to introduce Shane. Dr. Doyle is a member of the Crow or Absaliga Nation. He has a doctorate in curriculum and, and instruction and completed a postdoctoral appointment in genetics with the University of Copenhagen in Denmark in 2016. With 20 years of teaching experience, Dr. Doyle is a full-time educational and cultural consultant, designing American Indian curriculum for many organizations, including Montana Public Schools, the National Park Service, and the Museum of the Rockies. He is currently serving on the board of directors for us, the Extreme History Project, (laughs) also Hopa Mountain, and the Archaeological Conservancy. He also serves on the Montana Arts Cultural Council and Aesthetics Committee and the Governor's Parks in Focus Committee. Welcome, Shane. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much. Wow, it's great. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, ever since we scheduled it. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And we're glad to have you back and to have you and only you on the program today because (laughs) (laughs) not to dismiss any of our our other lovely guests, one of which was my husband. Um, So, Shane, we had you on with with Ian Van Collar, who's a um, professor in photography, and my Mm -hmm. husband over at MSU, and uh, Dr. Craig Lee, Mm -hmm. who works with Metcalf Archaeology. Good and friend. also te- teaches the class um, in archaeology at MSU. So I, I sort of share that that um, department with him. And we had been speaking with all of you about your collaborations, going up and looking at ice patches, the archaeology, the cultural and environmental information that's coming out of those ice patches. And now so much of what we know is that indigenous people were living regularly up at high elevations Mm -hmm. and that was that was a really fun podcast and if listeners you haven't listened to that one you should definitely go look Mm -hmm. that one up Mm -hmm. but Shane was one of three and today we have them all to ourselves so we're gonna we're gonna dive into a few other topics today right Crystal right right so we talked just very briefly when you were on with um with the other two we talked very briefly about the Anzic site but we wanted to dive into that a little deeper today Mm -hmm. and and really talk about what that place is what the Anzic Mm -hmm. site is and your involvement with that site so can you just start us off Shane by you know kind of starting at the beginning I guess so to speak of of your involvement with the Anzic site, what it is, where it is, all those important mm. things about the and site. And maybe maybe begin with actually, because I don't know the answer to this, when did you first 
become aware of the Anzac site and know about it. Do you remember? Oh, yes. It's great coincidence, actually, and uh, great questions. Um, you know, I didn't really know much about the Anzac site. It never registered with me um, as a place on the map in my mind's eye or anything else, for that matter, until I began to read uh, Doug McDonald's book about uh, hunting gathering in Montana, uh, 11,000 years um, I think it's called uh, Montana, Montana Before, Before History. Montana Before History, right. Yep. 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 And in there it talked about the Anzic site. And that's the first time I think I had ever really, it had occurred to me, it dawned on me that, wow, there was actually human remains in that site. And that was never really associated with any of the other sites that uh, were in that book. And so to me it really stood out. And um, I made a mental note of that. And then... Literally within like six months, I think, of having read that, I received an email, um, and the email was from an archaeologist over in Livingston, Larry Laren, and uh, he wanted to know if I was interested in going to meet him and some researchers at the Anzic site. And I thought, wow, the Anzic site, that's the one I just read about. You know, and uh, again, it, it hadn't ever really been a thing to me before that. And so um, <clears throat> Larry was the one who reached out to me. And then he said, um, there's a filmmaker that's coming from Denmark, and he wants to meet you, and he wants to work with you. I'm going to give him your email, if that's okay. And I, I told him that's fine. And so after that, Larry and I kind of, you know, communicated um, sporadically until the moment or until the day that I, I met everyone at the Anzic site. But uh, the filmmaker and I, the Danish filmmaker, worked pretty closely on all the details because he wanted to document the entire exchange of when I showed up there at the site and me meeting Eska Willerslev, you know, the famous geneticist who had um, cracked the code for the Anzic, his team. And I also met Sarah Anzic there. Um, and so, yeah, that's how it came about. So let's give people a little bit of background on the Anzic site. What you read, I'm sure, in Doug McDonald's book is that it is some of the oldest human remains ever found in the United States and certainly the oldest ones in Montana and of two young children. So I think a two-year-old and maybe an, an eight-year-old boy, or was the other one, is that right? And and was, these were found in the 1960s accidentally when people were digging for gravel on the Anzic family property. There were no laws protecting human remains on private property at that point or protecting really any Native American human remains. And um, so those, those bones were excavated along with this amazing cache of Clovis-era um, era artifacts. So all of that then has had this long history before you even um, got this opportunity to meet someone who had then already, Eski Villerslev, had already then, with Sarah Anzik, also geneticist, done the DNA analysis mm -hmm. of those remains pretty much 40 years, 45, almost 50 years later, I suppose, right? Yep. from when the 45, because it was 1968, and then um, they finished the uh, decoding in 2013. Mm. So uh, an incredibly remarkable story. And mm -hmm. then what did they want to ask mm -hmm. you about? Why were you brought in on the project at that point? 
Well, I was brought in to save the day, basically. <laughs> uh, As you often are, exactly did you grab your I white did. hat before you <laughs> met up with them? Yeah. I grabbed my drum and was ready to sing a healing mm. song. There we go. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, I did. And um, and the filmmaker asked me to do that as well. <clears throat> but you know, they did the study on the boy without having ever really consulted officially with tribes. And I think that they felt now that it was proof positive that the boy was likely uh, the forefathers or his family was the forefathers to pretty much every American Indian in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, by the way, the Anzic grave is the oldest grave in the Western Hemisphere. And it's the second oldest human remains found in the Western Hemisphere. There's only one found in Mexico that's a little older. It's amazing. <clears throat> it's amazing. It really it's is. right right here near Bozeman. I yeah. mean, so over just is, north of Livingston. It's yeah. amazing. So yeah. it's it was found, <clears throat> this grave was found near current-day Wilson, or present-day Wilson, yeah. Montana. Yeah. And you know what's so remarkable? Um, the day I arrived there, uh, the first thing that occurred to me was, here's Highway 87 which cuts right through Wilsaw and Clyde Park. And just off of the road there is where the Anzic site is. And directly across the Highway 87 is the Wilsaw Cemetery. That's oh, unbelievable that's so yeah. strangely coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think Stephen King it? needs yeah. to know oh, this information. Boy. Yeah. Or not. Maybe we don't want him to be there. <laughs> it was really something. Mm. Mm. So when you say you're brought in to save the day, that that larger understanding that nowadays, I think we really, I mean, it, it's not that many years later, but I think to undertake any uh, excavation or dealing with human remains, whether it's dealing with the, the physical objects, the genetics, or the grave goods that went along with them, you wouldn't do a project like that unless it was done initially in collaboration, or you would ideally not do that unless it was done in collaboration. I think that's what we are hoping that we see the field moving towards. Mm -hmm. So you yep. were then put in a position of having to mediate maybe between those who had done the research and other tribes in Montana or what would you say yeah you know it was really interesting they didn't tell me any uh, anything about the research that they'd done on the boy um, they didn't tell me that they uh, got the genetic sequencing achieved or anything I didn't know anything about that until I arrived there that day and then um, Eska Willerslev said I want to tell you something you know kind of like um You've got something hanging out of your nose. You know, like, I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. And he's like, we did a study on the boy that was here. And I was like, yeah, okay. And he said, and we've come to find out that he is Native American. And he's the ancestor to all, probably all Native Americans. And when he said that, I was like blown away. I, um, when he said it, I was looking right at the crazy mountains because, uh, you know, the, the grave site is right there in the shadow of the crazy mountains. And the crazy mountains are very important uh, to, to me, uh, to my family, to the Crow people. Um, and to know that here was an ancestor of mine, 12,600 years old, that, that was right here by the crazy mountains, you know, and that... You know, that just kind of proves that, you know, my family's been here for 12,600 years. The first thing that came to my mind was, wow, all that time and we never screwed up the water. Mm. 
Wow. Wow. Man, that's an yeah, achievement. I don't know yeah. about other, right. you know, what other cultures can pin their achievements to, but I think that's a pretty significant one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's huge, especially in this day and age. I can't imagine what that experience must have been like, especially knowing that they wanted the cameras there right away so that they could catch your reaction. So it must have felt um, very much on the spot and probably telling you something maybe you already knew. I mean, I don't think Doug McDonald questioned in the book that that individual (laughs) is Native American, but Mm -hmm. then this additional DNA information connecting it to other databases and with scientific you know, authority proclaiming that that boy's ancestors were sort of ancestral, part of the ancestral population of every single indigenous individual, you know, in these hemispheres. It's remarkable. Yeah, and I don't think they could have picked a better person to tell because I grasped all of that because I've always enjoyed science and I've always been fascinated with the study of, you know, history and um, not necessarily archaeology and pursuing archaeology as a science myself, but just the whole um, scientific um, <clears throat> process um, and what we can discover through all that. And so, um, you know, it was uh, all of those things coming together when they told me that. You know, it was my understanding of science. It was my strong love for, for that piece of land there. It was, um, you know, my cultural identification um, with the people who live there. Um, and, you know, my life has never quite been the same since then. And I've thought about that a lot. And I've had so many different experiences um, that are just kind of like beyond words um, that, you know, make me wonder, you know, uh, about a lot of different things. But I want to follow up and on back up when you mentioned about uh, the cameras being on and at that moment. And uh, it was a lot. And I was emotional. I, I, you know, it made me emotional. I think I cried. I think I did have some tears. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, I'm going to sing this song, you know, to honor this boy's memory and the people that buried him and, you know, so many other folks involved with this. And so um, I took out my drum. I started singing. I closed my eyes. And, you know, it was, there was cloud cover that day. And as soon as I started singing, I could feel like the sun hit my face. And, um, that, you know, the cameras caught all that. And uh, it was one of those moments, you know, it was like, wow, did you guys see that? You know, as soon as I started singing, the sun came out and they noticed that. Now flash forward, that was in September of 2013. And flash forward to June of 2014 uh, when we did the reburial. And we showed up that morning at the burial site, pouring rain, just like intense summer storm, you know. And everyone had raincoats on except for me. And uh, thankfully, Brett French, the Billings Gazette outdoors reporter, happened to have an extra jacket he let me use. <laughs> and um, so, and this was all captured on film as well. Um, you know, we we got there, we got everything ready to do the reburial. It was raining, umbrellas were out, and everything. And as soon as that casket went in the ground and the first shovel of dirt went on, sun came out. Mm. That's amazing. Amazing. And Mm -hmm. those kinds of uh, experiences happened again and again and again, like throughout that entire time from the time, you know, I encountered Eska 
<clears throat> and to even up to the present day, you know, I mean, there's still stuff that happens all the time that's like feels, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, it must be a very surreal um, experience to kind of almost feel. I mean, you were selected, you know, and then mm-hmm. and then these things continue to happen. Can mm-hmm. I can I take you back to then after that day or from that day? Did, was there were you then asked to help figure out now what to do? They've told you this information. And was the idea then to ask, now what do we do yes. with this information? So tell us what happened then and what your involvement was. Well, they did. They leaned on me. They said, what should we do? You know, we found mm-hmm. out this boy is a Native American. And, you know, he's your relative. And we want to know what you think we should do. And you know what's interesting that day I had gotten a hold of uh, the little Bighorn College and they were supposed to be there that day there were supposed to be a class full of students coming from the college oh, there were supposed to be other Crow Indians there Tim McCleary was supposed to be there hmm. and I wasn't supposed to be the only one there I invited my uncle and because Larry Laren had said if there's anyone else that you want to invite invite them and no one could make it mm. <clears throat> at the last minute Tim McCleary canceled out he said he had some other thing that he had to do and so I never intended on being the representative, the chosen one. I It just turned out that way. Hmm. And then that day when they asked me, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, you need to go talk to other Indians, you know. I mean, I'm just one guy. And and he said, well, where should we go? And I said, well, I can take you to four of them. Um, you know, we can go to Crow, we can go to Cheyenne, and we can go up to Flathead and Browning. And, you know, that makes the most sense. <clears throat> Later on, when he came back, we went up to the High Line, and uh, you know we did the whole state one time. Um, but we visited all four historic preservation officers, and they were all very receptive, very calm, very uh, um, composed, and all you know very thoughtfully told us we should rebury that little boy. And I, I'm not sure if I said this in the Ice Patch talk, but um, when we went up to uh, Salish Kootenai. Um, we met with this uh, historic preservation officer named um, Francis Ald. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the Kootenays are a, a language isolate. So they, you know, they're the only language isolate in Montana. So they could be the oldest group of people. We don't know where they are. So what does origin. that mean, Shane, um, language isolate? That does means that, that mean their it? language is only here in Montana. Okay. It's nowhere else. It can't be linked back to any other place. And every other tribe that's here has some other larger uh, base of you know folk population that they um, came from, um, but not the Kootenai because they can't find their language anywhere else. And no other language family related to it. So they could be the oldest people. And, um, and I wouldn't doubt it, but... Uh, we, we went up to Kootenai, we talked to Francis, <clears throat> and we were getting ready to go. And um, uh, he called me over and he wanted to talk to me privately. And he said, um, you know, years ago uh, when I was a young man, the elders came to me and said, um, there's a hole by the crazy mountains, you need to fill it. Hmm. And he said, I never understood. Wow. Mm. Until today. Right. <sighs> Man, that was powerful. I just, I couldn't believe it. Who would say something like that? And how would they, 
even know, you know. Um, and you wonder like, how long has that been passed down just yeah. like that without people really knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. I don't know. It was just one of the, another sign I, like we were on the right path and that we were doing the right thing. And Eska is such a, a, a sincere person. And I think uh, Native people, uh, that resonated with Native people. Mm. And, um, and so that success there at the Anzic and how I helped, you know, facilitate that reburial. And it really it came down to Sarah as well because Eska um, didn't have the authority or power to rebury the boy. That was Sarah's decision. And so talk about Sarah a little bit and how she's involved. Well, Sarah's my good friend now. And, um, you know, I met her that day at the uh, grave site. And, um, you know, after I sang that song, she was crying. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she said, I want to rebury the boy. And um, so that's when uh, I told Eska, well, if we're going to rebury him, then we need to go around to the reservations and visit the historic preservation officers to tell them what you know, the research has found and what our intentions are, and hopefully they'll agree to join us in this collaborative effort to repatriate, rebury this boy. At the time, we didn't know any details. We didn't know how we were going to bury him. We didn't know where we were going to bury him. Um, we didn't know who was going to do the reburial. And that was left to me to negotiate with the tribes. And so I worked with the uh, Montana Burial Board. And um, I worked with the uh, uh, ceremonial leader, uh, Larson Medicine Horse. Uh, but back to Sarah. Um, you know, Sarah, uh, from the time that she said, you know, she's told me this, and I think it's been on film as well, but, you know, from the time she uh, was introduced to the the remains, uh, she knew that, you know, he this was somebody special, that his story had to be told. And Sarah, this is her family's land. This She grew up on this land. She grew up in Walsall, Montana. Yep. And um, and so she's she's been with this place since her birth. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine inheriting that responsibility yeah. um, because it wasn't any of mm-hmm. the Anzics themselves that happened to be digging for gravel that day. It was, it was other people that they were allowing. But then... This came to light. Larry Laren was involved from the get-go in trying to figure out what the right thing to do was. And for decades, it seemed like these boys' remains were passed around. So I'm sure for her, it was a tough decision to make to have them analyzed, mm-hmm. um, but felt that that would make a scientific contribution. And I've heard you sing, Shane. I think if it were me and I'd heard you sing, you just it's a whole other level of understanding that this boy just would need to go back to his resting place where he'd been disturbed from. I mean, that's, I'm sure, I've heard you speak before on that about how that was sometimes lost in other national press about the DNA from the boy, you know, Mm -hmm. that this is still somebody buried this boy, you know. Well, I think, you know, it's one of the greatest stories of all time. I mean, there's just no getting around it. I mean, every aspect Mm. that you consider from it, and I've thought about so many different aspects of it, and it relates so much to our present-day state of affairs, not just in America, but in the world. And, you know, just having a conversation with one of my friends today about his great-grandparents 
and the discipline, the self-discipline that they used to impose on themselves because of the expectations that they held that were passed down to them from generation to generation. And this is what makes the human condition, uh, it gives us the ability to thrive, gives us the ability to enjoy our lives, to to rest, um, and to feel strengthened and to fortify it, and to feel fortified and to to want to go do things um, and to just enjoy our time and our lives. And that, I think that feeling and that um, state of the human condition is sadly missing from our society and, and from the world. <clears throat> and I think it's represented in the art that we create. Uh, it's represented in how we spend our time with one another, how we honor each other. And, you know, thinking about the Anzic grave, um, you know, the tools that were buried with that little boy, um, you know, priceless collection of tools. Um, and then the Elkhorn antlers that were <clears throat> found to be 200 years older than the boy. Um, you know, again, priceless family heirlooms that were broken purposefully and, and put into the grave. You see the care and the love that um, these people put into this, um, the remembrance of this little, this little vulnerable child. And, you know, you remember um, what it means to be a human being and uh, what it means to have a community and um, what it means to be dedicated to that, even after they've passed away. And I, my feeling about it is, um, you know, the, the tools in there were like um, a form of a will uh, that was written. And the will was, we want this little boy to be in here with these tools. And I think we need to respect people's wills, um, whether or not they were 10,000 years old or 20,000 years old, it doesn't matter. Um, it's what makes us human beings. I'm always astonished um, because just looking at how when people, Euro-Americans were coming out to settle the West and places on the Northern Plains, it was extremely challenging, you know, as it was for um, Vikings who tried to settle in Greenland mm -hmm. and stuff like that, you know, but the to to the point where so many cultural anthropologists and archaeologists all through the late 1800s and early 1900s thought that this was just an empty place where people periodically came to hunt bison. They didn't believe people were capable of living here year-round before the mm -hmm. horse. And then to see these exquisite objects, this care going into this burial. People were living. We have mm -hmm. all that evidence mm -hmm. now, but nobody was looking here. They weren't mm -hmm. looking because the assumption was it was challenging enough for other people who were mm -hmm. agriculturalists. And and so it's and it's so amazing to just imagine what this place that we're living in now was like 12,000 years ago, that mm -hmm. people were making this living. And I think your whole sense of this idea of this sense of community and that continuity, that is what kept them alive. Um, and I feel like that's often the missing part of all the, yes. the, the stuff that archaeology can contribute. Yep. It's that human part. Mm -hmm. So Shane, I, I think that them bringing you in on this this whole project is what's given it a really, <laughs> you know, that that connection and that life that it needs. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm happy that it ended up working out that way for Thank all you. of us. 
and are you still working on this, Shane? Are you still, mm-hmm. is this project still ongoing in some form or fashion? Yeah, you know, my goal thing? is to write a book. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, and, you know, a lot of my book is going to be on the whole Anzic experience and, you know, the insights that I've gleaned from that. Um, there's just so many, you know, um, we could talk for days and days about all the different things that I've, you know, really thought deeply about. Um, and so uh, the title of my book as is, you know, of course, you know, uh, mess- Messages from Medicine Wheel Country. And um, Medicine Wheel Country is um, the term I use to describe the Northern Plains. And, uh, you know, that's the area where we find the medicine wheels, which are uh, rock cairns on the ground. Um, and those cairns uh, embody and represent Plains Indian uh philosophy, way of life, um, economy, um, just so many different aspects of their their society. Um, and so that's the reason why I've kind of taken to uh, taken a shine to that term medicine wheel country. And you just so eloquently described exactly what I seek to achieve through my book um, and through my work in general, which is to give a sense of humanity to these, folks who we only know of through data, um, through, you know, digging through the soils and measuring the composition of the soils and the age of the charcoals and, you know, the uh, how the things were chipped. And, you know, I mean, it can be very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, that might be part of the reason why Native people haven't really engaged that much with it. Um, but... When a story or an experience like Anzic comes along, it really changes the nature of how you think about those things. And it makes you want to give those people a voice. Um, these were smart people. These were determined people. These were some of the greatest people who ever lived. And I think about you know, the type of predators that they had to face on a daily basis, like saber-toothed tigers and um, dire wolves and... Um, um, woolly mammoths. Woolly well. mammoths, trying to hunt a yeah. woolly mammoth at 11,000 pounds. Yeah. And then not to mention that you're also living during the Ice Age. Yeah, right, and, right. And, and these people were coming and settling onto a continent that didn't have other people. Mm-hmm. And this is what fascinates me. <laughs> They're making it up as they go. They're moving inland and finding one new habitat after another mm-hmm. and finding a way to perpetuate themselves. And very quickly, they get all the way from the West Coast because um, they're below the ice sheets when they can come in through the coast to the East Coast and down and all the way through South. I mean, it's it's truly remarkable. Um, and then the connections we see across those big landscapes and the, the linguistic connections even that we see across those landscapes, mm-hmm. not only in the DNA and the language, but it's just, it's to me, one of the most fascinating stories is, is that indigenous yes. peopling of, of this, these continents um, in, the, um, in, in this sort of new world that they would call it. But we're finding it's older and older than right. we thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I agree with you. And I think that, to me, has been a, a fascinating part of, for me, moving to Montana and understanding the archaeology mm. here and realizing mm-hmm. there is very, very deep history in the deep past here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So why don't we take a quick station break, um, sure. and then we'll start to ask you a, a few other questions. So Thank you. 
You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Shane Doyle about his work on the Anzac site, a 12,500-year-old archaeological site in Montana. So Shane, I know you were recently interviewed for an article written for the Smithsonian Magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was called The Lost History of Yellowstone. Can you tell us a little bit more about the interview and the article itself and kind of what has come from that article? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. You know, the article really had quite an impact, um, apparently, from the feedback that they received from their uh, their readership. Uh, a lot of people took a great interest. And a lot of people have a lot of passion on the topic. And... You know, Yellowstone Park is such an iconic place around the world, I think. Um, And I think for most people, it really represents the best of American culture and really the best idea of America. And so if you have any type, if someone comes out with any type of criticism against the park, uh, they're opening themselves up to... um, Oh, are they ever? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Let's hear it, Shane. What happened? (laughs) Don't hold back. (laughs) And, you know, I think the article was meant to describe the ancient history of Yellowstone from my perspective and probably from Doug McDonald's perspective. However, from the author's perspective, the article was meant to equally describe how the Yellowstone Park Service itself and the National Park Service has excluded uh, Native people from the very beginning, um, mm. b- basically kicked them out of the park to make it a park. Um, and, you know, when you pick up the brochure as you drive through uh, the entrance gates there, one of the first sentences you read is that uh, – the message to the tourist says you're entering a place that in Yellowstone Park that where you can see the world as it was before humans oh my goodness gracious that is still part of the literature there in Yellowstone Park and I think that the author for the article really took you know he he took that to task he wanted to make a point that this needs to be changed Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think Doug and I both felt that we were almost kind of used a little bit by the author to make his point mm. um, because I I said a lot more to the author. I spoke with him for about an hour on the phone and he only selected quotes that, you know, fit his, I think, his message that he wanted to send. So I, not that I was unhappy with that, but one of the things that he said and I honestly cannot remember saying, uh, was that in the in the article it said that I said that the Yellowstone Park was a, quote, slap in the face to Native American people. I told my wife, I don't think I've ever used slap in the face um, as a metaphor for my life, but maybe I did. I don't know. Um, mm. Anyway, it, you get the point. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways it is because you go in there uh, – as a native person, there's no trace of you. Uh, you don't see your representation anywhere there. Um, there's no cultural representation. There's no photographs. You know, there's a few signs that, that tell a few ped- pedestrian information about, you know, native people. But it's, 
Um, you have to look hard for those, though. You really do. You really do. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's throughout the National Park Service. I mean, there you Yosemite, go. too, but it's it's definitely a holdover. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's held up as America's best idea, um, mm-hmm. and I'm forgetting which, which of the great white conservationists made that their I pet think- phrase. <laughs> um, but, you know, our friend... Laurel Angel, who we interviewed on the podcast, she says she she likes to just go ahead and start any conversation that involves lands that are set aside with, um, let's just remember that all the land was stolen. And that comes from (laughs) Caroline Finney. And this this whole history that has for so long been unacknowledged, and now there's so many of us acknowledging it, and yet the Park Service remains, you know, so I think you're absolutely right that you and Doug McDonald were kind of the voices that were used to create um, that that side of the story when really there's so many. And mm-hmm. I'm, I venture to say there's probably many people within the Park Service. But until the Park Service mm-hmm. starts telling that story, mm-hmm. the general public is not going to understand really what happened and what the history of Yellowstone is. Mm-hmm. And they also, um, so they interviewed you, Shane, but they also yeah. interviewed Doug McDonald, and he's yeah. a... Um, professor at the University of Montana, an anthropology professor at the University of Montana. And he's been doing archaeological work in Yellowstone for years now, yep. finding numerous archaeological sites representing Lots of Native evidence people of occupation in, and, in, yes, in Yellowstone. In yep. And then they also interviewed Elaine Hale, and Elaine oh, has... Worked has was an employee of Yellowstone National Park for many years, and she's an archaeologist, and she also has documented numerous sites in Yellowstone National Park that um, represent the Native people that had lived there for thousands and thousands of years as well. So, yeah. um, so you know, it was it that was what was interesting to me is is that there's all this documentation of people living there, but you don't often see that coming out. Um, and, you know, we know a lot of other people who have worked in Yellowstone. Um, Steve Auberg did a, a, a large-scale survey of Obsidian Cliff in Yellowstone. Mm. Um, Obsidian Cliff is a, an amazing archaeological site of this big chunk of obsidian where people for many years would go and, and mine for stone tools, um, for obsidian stone and it, tools. And it, that Yellowstone obsidian is found everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. You know, the, outside yeah, of Montana. Yeah. yeah. It's Down found, along the Mississippi. Everywhere. Yeah, it's yep. found everywhere. So, so you know, it's, you know, in the archaeological community and, and, and in the Native community, we know how extensively Yellowstone was always used. Yeah. Um, but growing up, you know, like I've said before, I grew up next to Yellowstone National Park, and I always heard growing up, that people stayed, that native people stayed out of the park yeah. because, and I'm, you know, yeah. they were afraid, the, of, they were afraid the of the geysers. Uh, <laughs> that was the, that's what I always heard growing up, which is, you know, now that you think about it, that's ridiculous. But <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. In so, fact, uh, they enjoyed them. Yeah, <clears throat> but they, of course, they understood it was a dangerous place to navigate, right, and then right. you better, you know, know where you're going. And, you know, not a good place to be wandering around in the dark. Exactly. Really, I feel like the the only story I ever heard of Native folks in the parks was the Nez Perce going mm. through. To, mm. So it always seemed like a more recent, and this was a way through. And they, yeah, it's still not a story that's told and incorporated. And and now, gosh, even given the pandemic, we've seen more and more people visiting the park. More and more people still getting that same message that this was this 
barren wilderness, this virgin land. And mm-hmm. um, it's so difficult to see that perpetuated. So do you think this article has a chance of making an impact? It's in Smithsonian. It's it's getting some feedback. Will it, will it um, maybe influence? We're in a different administration. Um, maybe how the Park Service handles some of its signage messaging and things like that well i'm hopeful Mm. uh you know one of the suggestions that was in the article that i have been talking about from time to time is having a little teepee village there in the park and that would be the coolest thing ever yeah it would be the biggest draw in Mm. the park and you could have um you know historians in each teepee each teepee each tribe could have their own teepee um you know they all have specific styles and stuff that they do with their lodges um and you know they could tell their own stories from their own tribe's perspective. Um, I think the, the uh, tribal colleges could help facilitate something like that. Um, you know, you could have artisans there. Uh, I mean, there's just a whole world of possibilities that could open up if we really um, took the time to uh, work out the collaborative um, agreements that have to happen to make something like that come to reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And Shane, you've been doing some additional work with the Smithsonian um, because there was such a big um, interest in this article. Mm-hmm. They've asked you to do some webinars. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. We did a webinar, and uh, Doug and McDonald and I were on there, and the photographer from the uh, article was on there, and it was a live webinar, and it was pretty well attended. Um, you know, just uh, kind of just as we alluded to the um, rather ineffective relationship that the National Park Service has had with Native people, um, just as kind of a representative example of that, the Park Service was invited to participate in that webinar, um, but uh, higher-ups in the service decided that it was not a good idea and was not in their best interest to make a Uh, public statements in that venue and so you can see that they're uh, very cautious um, and they're walking a fine line uh, about uh, what they do as uh, to represent uh, you know the park service they have this long history that they've created for themselves of what the park is and what it's supposed to mean to the general public in america and and that narrative has to change now Mm -hmm. um and I think there's a lot of push from, from people who work in and around cultural preservation, cultural history, anthropologists, Native Americans, tribal historic preservation folks. There's so many different groups surrounding that. It's going to be very interesting to see how the Park Service can navigate this. I do have one project I'm working on right now uh, for Mountain Time Arts and just getting started on it and um, collaborating with um, as many tribes as I can um, there's uh, an opportunity coming up next year is the 150th anniversary of the uh, making of the Yellowstone Park. Right. And so, right. yep, yep. And um, so here's an opportunity to change the narrative, to uh, add some Native voices. And so uh, Mountain Time Arts has kind of commissioned me to create an artistic a performance piece in somewhere in the park or nearby there uh, for next summer, I believe. And so we're, I'm in the early stages of coming up with something. But, um, 
you know, and I'll be collaborating with as many folks as I can. And I've already had uh, some talks with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition's uh, point person on the Wind River Reservation. Oh, and so, uh, and yep, and he's been in contact with like I think forty-four different tribal historic preservation officers, and I'm on their emailing list. And so, there's movement and there's interest and there's some leadership. I think that um, is starting to take shape here uh, for next year. Um, and if I could just you know add one other thing there, um, you know, 150 years ago, this this uh, today, um, April second. Um, you know, it was just a few months after the Bear River Massacre, the Marias Massacre that had occurred up on, uh, you know, the Marias River where the Blackfeet were killed. And then it was exactly, you know, just a few months later that spring that um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Doan and uh, other group, other officers from uh, the fort over here um, went down into the Yellowstone Park and uh, you know a lot some historians believe there's a strong correlation between uh the Marias massacre and the subsequent um opening of the Yellowstone Park um from that perspective you know there's you know a direct link between blood spilling native blood spilling and you know America's greatest idea coming to fruition and it's kind of hard to reconcile those two um, events without feeling some type of unease, and I think that um, you know that that should be common knowledge. Right now, I think you know very, very, very few people would ever know that type of information. But I think it should be common knowledge because we need to make it you know obvious and apparent to every single student that the colonial processes that happened here in America were um, violent, um, that they were uh, unjust, and that uh, we're still still dealing with the legacy, the negative consequences of that uh, period in time. Right, and we celebrate this national park without understanding all the full implications of how it came to be and still yes. has still impacts today. Um, this erasure in history of mm-hmm. that whole colonial violent process. Exactly. I, I, I feel like that's all tied into the, the reservation period and then the Dawes Act and all of these things that mm-hmm. took more and more land away yeah. from Native people and, and created violent bloodshed and, you know, chasing the Nez Perce back and forth and all these folks. So it's... Um, I, I I read a great book by I believe Elliot West, um, mm-hmm. who was it the last Indian Wars, yeah. and it and it really gets into that period that you're talking about, Shane, and and really mm-hmm. presents a very um, real close look from primary documents, but this very uglier side of history that we don't really um, ever. Um, make clear when we're talking about it. We, we just, you know, talk, talking, talking about this just as America's great idea, um, hide so much stuff. And I, I know so much is going on in this country with people feeling polarized, but I think these histories can be healing once they're better understood. And I, I'm grateful that you're willing to speak out on these things. And I'm grateful that Doug McDonald as an archeologist is willing to back all that up with data. If anybody might have questions, because it's so apparent that 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 history is deep 
and mm-hmm. real in mm-hmm. a place like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so good for you, and sorry that you guys have to take the heat for all that, but we've got your back here. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal always. and I have your back. Always. Yeah, yeah, Most people do. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. right. That is true. Well, Shane, we could talk with you all day. Right? <laughs> we have wow, so many other topics. Out of time? I know we're out of time. We are we are out of time. Um, it's been such a great conversation. Yeah. We always really enjoy talking with you, and hopefully, we can talk with you again soon in the future. Um, we hope to have you back again and again because you're always Love doing to. such amazing work. And thank you. Doing you know. Um, you always have a lot of irons in the fire. So I'm glad to hear about your work with um, Mountain Time Arts. Mountain Time Arts is um, another local organization here in Bozeman, Montana, that's doing some phenomenal um, work with um, looking at art and water and history. So um, we're in, we collaborate with them and partner with them quite a bit as well. So they're, they're good people. So And Shane, I know my husband wants to collaborate with you on a piece on the Crazy Mountains and have you um, annotate a piece that would be um, a wonderful contribution to the art world. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, I wish, I wish we had time for a song, but um, I think we'll maybe have to schedule that in to the next time we podcast Let's with you. Let's do the next yes. time. Yeah, yes. we'll make that yeah. definite part of it because that's, that's <laughs> wonderful for people to get a chance to hear if they haven't already. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for being with us today. And so we want to, yeah, yeah. And I feel like we never really get to finish our conversation. <laughs> so that's good. We'll have you we back have again. We have a whole series. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Our Shane Doyle series. I know. And I'm sure we share, we share some Irish ancestors together back, oh, in, back in that part of the world, too. Yeah, um, all right. So you thanks. You better go have a stout on them. Absolutely. Yes, that's that's where we're idea. headed. I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks to you and to all our listeners out there. Thanks to Steve for always recording us and editing us to make us sound better. Um, and thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And we hope that you can join us again to find out more about the The Dirt Dirt on the Past. If you're enjoying the Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're our new podcast, and we're trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>